So I too am going to start with Gandhi, but hopefully try and get away from him by the end of, uh, of this paper. So on, so on the 4th, on the 4th of April, 1936, Mahatma Gandhi replied to a letter in his newspaper Harijan that impressed upon him the entanglement of aesthetics and violence. An anonymous correspondent wrote, criticizing Gandhi's preference for celibacy over birth control, that the Mahatma had, quote, missed that man is above all an artist and a creator. He's not satisfied with bare necessity, but must have beauty, color, and charm as well. He has made every necessity into an art and has spent tons of blood on them. War he must have as its necessary corollary, which also he has transformed into a great art. Going on to quote Nietzsche from Twilight of the Idols, the correspondent distinguished human nature from nature at large, a distinction defined by man's capacity to create truth rather than be enslaved by it. From an artistic standpoint, says Nietzsche the iconoclast, nature is no model. This lying in the dust before trivial facts is unworthy of a thorough artist. The Mahatma, in his reply, could not simply discard the aesthetic for he had embarked on an artistic project of his own. He had opened, in that very same week, an exhibition of national art assembled by Nandalal Bose at the Lucknow session of the Indian National Congress. With this in mind, perhaps, Gandhi spoke of another aesthetic, opposed to indulgent sexual union, an aesthetic of limitation, necessity, and sensory restraint. Quote, man's artistic and creative nature at its best taught him to see art in self-restraint and ugliness in an uncreative union. The Mahatma went on to render unreal man's external war, paradoxically fought against foes of his imagination. He condemned proponents of this false war for adhering to their forefathers' mistaken view of sacrifice, whence, instead of sacrificing their, quote, base passions, they sacrificed innocent, non-human fellow creatures instead. This exclusionary humanism inhered for the Mahatma in the violence of colonial oppression, quote, going on today at the Abyssinian frontier, in which Gandhi said there was neither beauty nor art. War man must have, he argued, but the art of true war ought to be waged against the innumerable foes within. And it is this war that first-class art is portrayed. So Gandhi's refutation of the Ethiopian war as art at this moment was alike to, and yet unlike, Walter Benjamin's invocation of the same comparison in the work of arts in the age of mechanical reproduction, finished just a few months previously in February 1936. Benjamin took Marinetti's proclamation, let art be created though the world perish, as the epitome of self-alienation by which mankind, quote, experiences its own destruction as an aesthetic pleasure. Gandhi, however, embraced this aestheticization of a politics of suffering. The falsity of the Abyssinian war lay rather in its destruction of the other, rendered subhuman in its dispensability. So I want to suggest that the uncanny echoes between these texts intimate a global moment in which the question of aesthetics and its relationship to violence became in inescapable. While the actions advocated in response diverged, whether to sacrifice the self in Gandhi's case or to politicize art in Benjamin's. Excuse me, can you speak a little bit slower? Okay, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, the dilemma they diagnosed was shared. <laughs> the dilemma they diagnosed was shared. In a world moving towards apocalyptic conflict, truth appeared to be collapsing, and with it all other distinctions between art and war, politics and suffering, disaster and utopia. So in this paper, I want to borrow from many people seated in this room to argue that the expressive power and political charge of Indian painting in the 1930s 
was given life by this violent conjuncture. So I'm going to look back to the nationalist art of the conflictual 1930s to ask what new meanings suggest themselves when we resist narrating the content of the nation as already determined and visions of the political as subordinate to texts. So I probe the equation of Nandala Bose as Gandhi's artist by attending to the images that sanctify this art history. I'll begin with the panels Bose painted for the Haripura Conference of 1938 um, and read a subset of these works for the violence of their form and subject matter. I'll locate these paintings within the arguments that fish of the Congress in the late 1930s and suggest that Nandala's interactions with Subhas Bose and the instabilities of painting itself rendered the politics of his work more unsettling than is usually assumed. Okay, so in narrating Nandala's engagement with Gandhi and the political, I aim to take seriously his protestation that, quote, I am not a writer, I do not know the art of literary expression, so I do not have the ability to write a discourse on things, end quote. I rely primarily, therefore, on the visual evidence, not, that is, on the hagiographic texts Nandala wrote, which are usually used to cement his identification with Gandhi, but instead to allow the images he made to question that kind of hagiography. Okay, so the texts I'll use um, to reconstruct Nandala's intentions are the two volumes collected in Vision and Creation um, that explain in detail his practice as an artist. So I'll take the idiosyncratic Russell theory Nandala developed in these manuals, one replete with visual and emotional analogies, to propose that his paintings articulate the color in line and space, uh, articulate the political in color, line, and space. Okay, so the circumstances of Nandala Bose's collaboration with Gandhi are well known, and I won't restate them in toto here. The exhibitions at Lucknow and Fezpur served as an aesthetic precursor to his project at Haripura, where he would concentrate various pictorial traditions available to him as a set of techniques to render each picture dense with formal and political meaning. So when Gandhi opened the Kadi and Village Industries exhibition at Haripura in February 1938, he lauded Bose's posters as the perfect accompaniment to an exhibition that was not, quote, as exhibitions of old used to be, a place of entertainment, but, quote, a place of instruction for the hundreds of thousands of those who would be visiting. So I want to look first at this image. And I thought of this piece earlier as um, part of a Gandhian aesthetic at stake in these images, resonant with the finitude extolled in Hinswaraj, an art of practices learnt through one's hands and feet, didactic and self-limiting. <coughs> And so if we take the pith worker, we have an image of maternity, figured in muted tones. She's low to the earthen ground and composed by slow, deliberate brush strokes that mirror her absorbed occupation in her task. She's an archetype for the self-sacrificial Gandhian subject, combining social and economic reproduction and yoked to her heteronymous duty. The worker is outside, but she remains contained, both by the gray poles of her workspace and by being encased within an arch frame. <coughs> the image consequently accords with the tenor of Gandhian thought, read as a philosophical critique of the individualism, violence, and sensory excess engendered by colonial capitalism. It also corresponds to that other moment of Gandhism, what Partha Chatterjee called its moment of, of maneuver, the appropriation of the, quote, popular in a sanitized form erased the marks of vulgarity. So, and this reading could really be extended to many, many, many of the other paintings. So if we take just a small selection of them here, they will conform to these kind of large themes um, that kind of teeming with caste and gendered connotations, but they're congruent in some sense with Gandhi's critique of modern civilization and his claim to represent the subaltern classes of India. To assume, however, that the politics of the Haripura posters were exhausted by a single didactic message 
would evolve, involve the assumption that the meaning of images can be controlled without ambivalence. Uh, excuse me, can you slow it down a bit? I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, it's fine. No, we're running out of time anyway, so I think this is fine. Sorry, very sorry. Um, okay. So I want to approach another possible history of how these images were seen by, in Nandala's words, um, the, the thousands who walked past their display on the road, the main entrance, the volunteers' camps, and even in the rooms meant for Bapuji and Subhas Babu, the president. So I'm going to do this by taking a very brief, very, very brief detour through um, the political struggles that define the late 1930s. Um, because I think that what is often excluded from the consideration of Haripura is the context of conflict both within the Congress and in the world beyond that would unsettle any equation of the political with Gandhi alone. So the years from 1936 to 1939 saw, as Sumit Sarkar tells us, the left cohering around the presidencies of Jawaharlal Nehru and Subhash Chandra Bose in continuous battle with the newly consolidated right, formed from the capitalist classes, assembly politicians, and Gandhian constructive workers. The nodes of disunion in these years were the autonomy of peasant and labor mobilization, the renewal of direct confrontation with the imperial government and princely autocracies, and above all, perhaps, the, quote, smell of violence in the air that Gandhi discerned. Subhas Bose, speaking amongst these very posters at Haripura, um, proclaimed, quote, we are faced with a serious situation today. Inside the Congress, there are differences between right and left, which it would be futile to ignore. Outside, there is the challenge of British imperialism, which we are called upon to face. In his speech, Subhas raised the twin spectres of revolutionary violence and socialism. He remembered the martyrdom of political prisoners, including Jatin Das, and called for the expropriation of both agricultural and industrial property. So Bose gestured repeatedly towards the battle to come. He framed the confrontation in global terms, quote, ours is a struggle not only against British imperialism, but against world imperialism as well, of which the former is the keystone. In the months and years after Haripura, these positions would polarize, multiply, and increase in their states. At the Kisan Sabha conference at Komila in May 1938, Swami Sahajananda Saraswati, who would go on to support S.C. Bose um, in the 1940s, called for violent defense against Zamindar attacks. He coined the militant slogan, Lagal Lege Kese Danda Hamara Zindabad. Um, so so um, while the details of Bose's latest split in 1939 with Gandhi and the Gandhian wing and even Nehru have been amply gone over, um, it's pertinent to recall that in the midst of this internecine conflict, in January 1939, Subhas Bose visited Shanti at the invitation of Ramindranath Tagore. While there, he accepted Tagore's thanks, conversed with Nandalal, and addressed the latter students at Kalabhavan. Tagore called upon Bose as Deshnayat to, to fulfill his, quote, unyielding will to live and to conquer, and regretted that he could not join him in the fight that was to come. So I'm sure many people are asking, why bother narrating the history of political conflict in the International Congress when attempting to make sense of the Haripura posters? Well, I'm proposing here that a necessary step in grasping the power of these paintings is to put back in play the heterogeneous visions of the political at stake in 1938. The Congress was riven in these years, and neither Nandala Bose nor the other Shantaniketan artists can be easily equated with any of the competing positions. But more than that, the questions the Congress was riven over questions concerning the autonomy of peasant and tribal militancy, whether the laboring or the bourgeois subject constituted the ground of sovereignty, the dilemma of whether to govern or whether to fight, and above all, the looming, intrinsically global, problem of violence, were the very political stuff 
to which Nandala's paintings gave representational form. So I'll turn finally to these paintings themselves. I want to begin with this panel, The Bullfighter, because I think it poses the problems at the level of space and bodies that are most fundamentally at stake, yet it poses them in ways that are at once lucid and undecidable. What we have is the depiction of a youth wearing a yellow lungi and flowing orange turban, barefoot and naked besides these, wrestling with a bull that towers over him, clad in festive regalia. The man is muscled and virile, figured such that the brush strokes of his brown body exceed his definite but incomplete outer lines. The bull rears up onto two legs. It becomes bipedal, mirroring the stance of the man with which it grapples and exceeding its own animality. Consequently, the painting revels in ambiguity. Is the man beastly, the bull human, or both? Does man fight his own sensual nature, his ferocious exterior enemy, or again, both? So with these questions in mind, I think it's helpful to glance at the forms and linear rhythms of the nine aesthetic um, essences, the visual analogies for Russes and Barbers Nandala provided uh, in vision and creation. So here we can see that the form and rhythm at issue in these images, uh, in this image um, of interlocking conflict, oscillates dangerously between those of uh, Sringara or Eros, Rodra or Rage, so there's another one somewhere, yeah. Rodra or Rage, and Vera or Heroism. This is perhaps more clearly the case in, sorry, this, this is perhaps more clearly the case in the entangled embrace of wrestlers, but is still evident in the primed bodies of man and bull. The bull, um, a global image for sexuality and aggression in the 1930s, an image that gestures towards Picasso's Minotaur and Andalar's later Mahishasura, and structurally opposed to the revered maternal power, appears to signify the struggle with colonial society and state. At once, that is, the Gandhian struggle to negate the desirous subjects sustaining colonial capitalism and the martial struggle to throw off the yoke of imperial oppression. Okay, so the dilemma I think both faced was the difficulty of making this conflict appear immediate and unavoidable to his audience, who might only have glanced at the image briefly before being hired on at Haripura during the, during the conference itself. The solution he came upon, one that was again common to several of his paintings, depended on pushing part of the action forward beyond the framing device of the window. So in the, in, in the final image, the man grabs the bull by its horns, the sharpest, most concentrated point of its violence, realized in a dense black paint and without a bounding line, sorry, and without a bounding line. Um, the horns protrude, pushing the man back and puncturing the picture plane that's suspended be between the gray bands of the arch. Um, if we look at the two preparatory sketches for this work, we can see that um, despite the increased violence of the second, the action is just about contained by the frame. In the final version, however, the right horn comes through the painted window, um, bringing its violence from the realm of the imaginary into the realm of the real. The horn consequently acts, to use Roland Barthes' terms, as a very literal punctum. It pricks the sequestered space of the viewing subject um, and disrupts the distance of spectatorship, making confrontation with violence unavoidable. Okay, so through the interplay of abstract surface on which, um, on which the, the image is posed and penetrative action, both could invoke the universality of conflict without allegorizing it or lessening its charge. So I want to shift now and talk about two posters, Adon Warrior, 
five minutes. Okay, Adon Warrior, this one, uh, and Darky, this one. Uh, if, I'm running, if I'm running a little late. Okay, I'm gonna actually shift. Um, I'm gonna talk now about after, after Haripura. So Haripura in 1938 was the end of Nandalal Bose's explicit collaboration with M.K. Gandhi, but not with Indian nationalism. I want to glance at a final set, the final set of images. Sorry, I have to discuss. This is just, yeah. I want to glance at the final set of images I have to discuss. The illustrations with which Bose, assisted by other Shantiniketan artists, illuminated the handwritten copy of the Indian Constitution, completed in 1950 and kept in a helium container in the Parliament Library in New Delhi. So the images that concern us are the four that conclude the visual retelling of India's history. The duo of Tipu Sultan and Rani, uh, Jansirani Lakhribai, the outline of Bose's own Bapuji from the Dandi March, Gandhi again walking in the villages of Noakali, and Subhash Chandra Bose at the head of the INA in Pal. So the five figures in succession translate the uneven staccato history of anti-colonial resistance against the Raj into an unbroken, escalating temporality. The smaller images of Tipu um, and Rani Lakshmibai appear to stand not only for armed struggle with their weapons posed um, foregrounded in the frame, but also for the universality of that struggle, transcending communities, genders, and regions. The Mahatma is depicted first at the moment of mass mobilization at Dandi, and then healing interreligious tensions with a Muslim man and Hindu woman at Nuakali. Uday Singh Mehta tells us that the Indian constitution is a promissory note, its provisions for the unity of India and the equality of its citizens unreal and hence consigned to the future. Um, other scholars have argued that the constitution is chained to the past, to its colonial origins in the Government of India Act, or to the political bargain of the Pune Pact severed from its liberal universalizing pretensions in the process. Nandala's gallery of heroes here appears to promise a balm for these anxieties of our origins and coherence that are all too present in the text. Tipu and the Rani of Jansi are pictured on a page um, stating the special provisions for certain classes. They betoken unity, even whilst gross disunity and inequality are acknowledged in the script. The Mahatma stands as a symbol of ethical concord but is posed with the provisions on, um, on official language and emergency powers. The ghosts of future conflicts of the coercion and repression of his inheritors seems to haunt the page itself. Throughout the document, text and image emit discordant melodies, but nowhere more so than in the depiction of Subhas Chandra Bose and the Azad Hind Forge. Nandalal depicts Subhas with depth, making his monolithic, saluting body protrude towards the viewer. Um, the INA flag flutters in the midground, carried by soldiers from diverse religious and regional communities, and planes, presumably Japanese planes, hover over the mountains and forests. Subhas's armaments in his holy war to liberate India's sacred geography. The strangeness of the scene and its precise placement in this manuscript can hardly be overstated. Constitutions are hallowed texts for Republican nations, and as such, intensely teleological documents presuming the inevitability, unity, and fundamental justice of the national community moving through time. Yet here, the Mahatma's Noakali Walk for Religious Harmony in 1946, the event that more than any other vindicated the generative fictions of the Indian nation-state, a non-violent, secular India, is succeeded by Subhas Bose, who had actually died in 1945, leading a band of soldiers with access assistance and authoritarian presence.
If you can see around the edges, the text of Subhas Bose's radio broadcast from Rangoon, Mahatma Ji, father of our nation, in his holy war for India's liberation, we ask for your blessings and good wishes, enters the image, surrounds its boundaries, and attempts to domesticate it. Writing struggles to enclose a conflictual visual history within the strictures of a consensual textual mythology. And yet, the promise of Netaji's body, a body made solid and whole, with all the spectral vitality of the recently deceased, seems to resist this enclosure, drawn to exceed its frames of lines and words.